welcome to the Thankful Homemaker Podcast, a podcast to be an encouragement and blessing to each other in the role God has called us to as women. I'm so thankful you stopped by, so grab yourself a coffee or tea and sit with me a bit as we talk about how God's Word impacts every area of our lives as Christian women. Hello, friend. I'm Marcy Farrell from ThankfulHomemaker.com, and I'm so glad to be with you today. We are working through our series on the Sermon on the Mount, so if you're just joining in for this this first time, or maybe you have some episodes you would like to catch up on, you can find all of my episodes, these past ones in the series, at my home on the web at thankfulhomemaker.com, and they're under the Christian Living tab on my main menu. If you hover over that, you'll see a drop-down menu will pop down, and you'll see Sermon on the Mount series there. So last month, we dealt with the sin of murdering others in our hearts. And today, we are tackling the sin of adultery of the heart or the sin of lust. Lust is defined as intense or unrestrained sexual craving or an overwhelming desire or craving. We live in a culture today that is obsessed with sex and sensuality from TV ads to magazines at the checkout counters to cologne and perfume ads to images of women in their undergarments in store windows to the songs on the radio that glamorize infidelity. So how is it possible to live a life of purity in such a society? Elizabeth Elliot stated in her book, I highly recommend called Passion and Purity. She stated the majority will sacrifice anything, security, honor, self-respect, the welfare of people they love, obedience to God, to passion. They will even tell themselves that they are obeying God, or at least he doesn't mind, and congratulate themselves for being so free, so released, so courageous, so honest and upfront, a good and perfect gift, these natural desires, but so much more, but so much the more necessary that they be restrained, controlled, corrected, even crucified, that they might be reborn in power and purity for God, end quote there. And Susan Heck referenced this quote. She stated on it. She said, notice the words that Elizabeth Elliot uses, honor, obedience, control, restrain, crucify, all for purity. These words and thoughts, she continued, she said, seem so archaic to us in the 21st century. In the area of sexual purity, we have replaced honor with dishonor, obedience with disobedience, control for out of control, restrain with unrestraint, and crucify with anything goes, end quote there. It's so true. To those of us who believe and stand on the truth of God's word, we look a bit odd in our views to the society around us. I've shared before that my husband and I came to faith late in life, and if you've heard part of my testimony in episode 70, finding forgiveness after an abortion, you already know that my life before Christ was one that gave in to sexual sin. I do want to share that although I had sex outside marriage in my younger years, as an unmarried, non-believing woman, I so vividly remember my Doug and I having to tell family that I was pregnant, that we weren't married, and we knew it was wrong, and we were ashamed to have to share this with them. It was a difficult conversation. Our world has changed so much since that time in our lives. We've been married now for over 35 years, and now this sexual revolution that continues seems to be growing more and more into sexual perversion because it now seems like there 
is nothing off limits to how you feel you want to express yourself sexually or identify yourself. It's become an anything goes culture. People live together without being married. Sex outside marriage is common. It's not even frowned upon anymore from homosexuality to um, sins like pornography to child trafficking. We live in a culture just as the apostles did in their time that sexual immorality is running rampant. There's nothing new under the sun. But now, if we have been born again to a new life in Christ, we have at that moment become citizens of a new kingdom, and we are now called to live a life of purity and honor and obedience and restraint, and one that is to crucify the flesh. Last month, we worked through Jesus's first of the you heard that it was said statements as he was addressing the teaching the people heard from the scribes and Pharisees. Then Jesus began addressing the crowd with, but I say to you, and his first one of those statements addressed the sin of murder. And he pointed out to them that murder is more than just an outward action of physically murdering someone. But Jesus got to the root of the sin, to the sinful heart issue of anger. When I work through these sins here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, always comes to my mind. It was an eye-opening book to read in my life as a younger believer because we too easily can find ways to justify our sin and compare one sin to another saying something like, well, I was just angry at them, but it's not like I murdered them. Anger is murdering someone in your heart. Sin begins in our hearts and all sin is an affront against a holy God, even those we might deem, quote, respectable. So the last section of the text we work through in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26 addressed the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And in our text today, Jesus is quoting and addressing the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. So let me read our text today. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. But you heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and then throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The sixth commandment, Exodus twenty thirteen, protects the sanctity of life, and the seventh, Exodus twenty fourteen, the sanctity of marriage. So in Jewish law, Adultery referred to sexual intercourse with the wife or the betrothed. Think here, Mary and Joseph, right? Betrothed. And it was condemned because it was, in, in essence, taking another man's wife and was considered a legal use of that man's property. This was viewed primarily as just an external act. Adultery was a serious offense in the Old Testament. Leviticus 20.10 tells us, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall shall surely be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. The word adultery is related to the word adulterate, which means to render something poor in quality by adding another substance. Adultery is the adulteration of marriage by the addition of a third person. Adultery is voluntary sexual activity between a married person and someone other than his or her spouse. Adultery is not to be taken lightly. It brings God's consequences. 
Proverbs 6.32 tells us, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Hebrews 13.4, Let the marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Jesus is addressing here what they had heard regarding the law of adultery. The teachers of the day taught that it was wrong, and it is wrong. Jesus continues here in verse 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the problem with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees is they were preaching adultery as only a physical thing. In essence, they were saying, you can lust and fantasize all you want as long as you don't commit the physical act. You are righteous. Jesus in verse 28 is making it clear that he is addressing more than just adultery, but all sexual immorality because he is bringing it to the root of where all sin begins in the heart. If a man or woman looks at another lustfully, they have committed heart adultery with the other person. Jesus here, he's not adding to the Old Testament law, but Jesus is interpreting it correctly. God commanded purity of heart in the Old Testament. Exodus twenty seventeen: you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. God's law is so clear in how it calls for purity and integrity and how we think about others. So many professing Christians get caught up in sexual sin. We see it all too often in the life sometimes of mainline preachers, and the effects of it are devastating to the church, to families, and to those watching our lives as believers from the outside. We're in a bad place when we think that we are beyond any temptation. Jesus knows our hearts better than we do, thinking they're John 2.25, and he knows that not one of us is free from temptation, and we will continue while on this earth to do battle with indwelling sin. It is a battle, and we cannot let our guard down. We can choose to sin, but we don't know the consequences of those actions. We only see things in the moment, but we don't know the damage what some might deem just, quote, just one sin may do, or the guilt it will bring. It can destroy marriages, families. All sin comes with consequences. As Christians, we must say no to the world's motto, if it feels good, do it. We need to say no to that, my friend. Sinclair Ferguson stated so beautifully here. He said, God made men and women to be attracted to each other, to need each other, and to enter into relationships with each other that have physical, spiritual, and mental dimensions. We have, by God's goodness, the ability to share in the reproduction of other human beings in a context of the closed imaginable human relationship, both physically and spiritually. The gift of sexual relationship is unequivocally good. It is God's gift. But the supreme reason for that gift is companionship. God brought Adam to Eve in the Garden of Eden because it was, quote, not good for the man to be alone. It is within that bond of committed fellowship that family life is to be established and our sexual instincts are to find their fulfillment. And he continues, he says, in order to become one flesh, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. At the heart of the relationship lies the element of commitment, leaving parents and uniting with one's wife or husband. This is God's order, and we breach it at our own peril and at the risk of destroying our society. End quote there. Marriage is a beautiful gift from the Lord, 
I do have a whole series on marriage that I'll link in the show notes. It's a whole podcast series. I even got my dear husband to join me on an episode, and I'd love you to take a listen if you haven't yet, and I'll link that. But friend, adultery involves breaking of several of God's commandments. First, the one that just specifically forbids it, and then you've stolen someone else's companion, so it involves theft, and then you've coveted, right? You've desired something that wasn't yours to the point of actually taking it. Adultery, as Sinclair Ferguson stated, he said it shatters people's lives, disrupts families, and despises God. It is serious. So friend, remaining pure and obeying our Lord has to begin in our hearts. Jesus is laying out here the need for sexual and marriage fidelity. And he is continuing from our text last week on anger, reminding us we are to do the right things for the right reasons from the heart. No murder means no anger, so no adultery means no lust. Our verse 28 there in the Greek I read earlier, when it states with lustful intent, it gets translated in the King James Version as, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her. And we've been clear that lustful looks are sinful or adulterous. But the ESV expository commentary stated on this verse, it said, this text may also be translated as everyone who looks at a woman so that she lusts. So it's sinful to indulge in sinful glances and thoughts, but it's also sinful, because I'm talking to us women here, to incite lust, to dress or act in ways that lead others to think of adultery. So what about your dress or clothing choices? Martha P. stated it clear on what our motive should be as we get dressed for the day. She states, is the primary motive behind your appearance to please God or to please yourself? Do you want to be charming and beautiful for God's glory in order to draw attention to him or for your own glory in order to draw attention to yourself? End quote. I feel I can say pretty confidently that we know when we're dressing in a way to attract the wrong attention. It is not wrong to notice someone attractive. The problem comes when it becomes more than just a glance. And then where do your thoughts go? A.B. Bruce writes, he says, the look is not casual, but persistent. The desire not involuntary or momentary, but cherished. And R. Kent Hughes said, it is not the first glance that is sin, but the second that swells with lust and feeds upon the subject, end quote there. So the aorist tense Jesus uses in this statement in verse 28, it's conveying that the person has already committed adultery. So at this point, that, that lustful intent, you've already committed adultery. It's already irreversible, and it occurs in the heart. By this standard, we're all adulterers. I'm going to come back to R. Kent Hughes here again. He said, the realization of this, referring to the fact that we've all been adulterers at some time, ought to deliver us from all judgmentalism and pious condescension towards others who have fallen to adultery. And it should still instill with us, within us a poverty of spirit and a humility that realizes we are spiritually bankrupt and makes us amazed that God's, God loves us as he does, end quote there. So sexual sins always first begin in the mind. Jesus has laid out to the Pharisees here and us in this verse that sexual purity doesn't just involve the physical act of indulging in sex outside marriage, but he gets to the heart of the matter. Sexual sin begins in our hearts and we need to radically do some major surgery to live a life of purity in the world that we find ourselves in today. I'm going to move on here to Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 to 30. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Those are pretty strong words. Oswald Chambers said, the line, this line of discipline is the sternest one that ever struck mankind. So there have been people who have taken this literally. Origen of Alexandria had himself physically emasculated to remove his sensual desires. Or so he thought, right? He still had his eyes and his mind, so that probably didn't do him a whole lot of good. Jesus in these verses is referring to what commentators have called spiritual mortification, and John Stott explains this term just beautifully, so I'm going to read his words here. What does this involve in practice? Let me elaborate and so interpret Jesus' teaching. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, the objects you see, then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look. Behave as if you had actually plucked out your eyes and flung them away and were now blind and so could not see the objects which previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, the things you do, or your feet, the places you visit, then cut them off. That is, don't do it. Don't go. Behave as if you had actually cut off your hands and feet and had flung them away and were now crippled and so could not do the things or visit the places which previously caused you to sin. That is the meaning of mortification. End quote there. So don't let anything stand between you and Jesus, friend. We are eliminating the middle road here. No second look, no sensual dress. When you're with the opposite sex, maintain eye contact. One commentator stated, wandering eyes are sensual eyes and ultimately adulterous eyes. Job offers us much wisdom in chapter 31. In verse 1, he says, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Verse 7, he says, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes. In verse 9, he says, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and if I had lain in wait at my neighbor's door. So make a covenant with your eyes, my friend. And this entails not just in person or in-person relationships or when you're out and about, but what about things like watching TV or reading or what are we looking at on the internet, our music, the places we go, books, magazine, magazines, extreme measures may be necessary. Where you know you are weak, cut it off. Where you don't know where you are weak, ask the Lord to show you. This is not legalism, all right? Our Kent Hughes helps us out here a little. He says, am I suggesting a new legalism with a list of yeses and nos? He says, in no way. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, not anyone else's, but your eye, we are all different. We stumble in different things. One thing may arouse and leave another unmoved. One must cut something out, but another may be under so under no such obligation, unquote. So, we need to be completely honest here with ourselves. If you know something is causing you to sin, really not just in this area, but any area of your life, cut it off. Don't go. Don't look. Don't indulge. Don't read. Don't watch or whatever you may need to do. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells us to flee from sexual immorality. And Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. So how are we to do this? We can't in and of ourselves. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Romans 8.13 tells us, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Philippians 2, 12, to 13, um, 12 and 13 tell us, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. First off, we must begin by continually reminding ourselves of the gospel. Jerry Bridges stated in his book, The Discipline of Grace, which I highly recommend you read. It was our book club read this quarter in the Homemaking Matters community. He said, The freedom and joy that then come from a cleansed conscience create the desire and give us the right motive to deal with those sins. We cannot effectively pursue holiness without going back again and again to the gospel. The gospel is the only foundation upon which we can build the disciplines necessary to pursue holiness. Grace and discipline cannot be separated. So friend, if you know there are areas where you are tempted to sin, take the time to make note of those areas, to find passages of scripture that address them, memorize and meditate on them. Ask for the Holy Spirit's help in obeying God's word. It's not just enough to put off the sinful habit, but we need to put on the godly characteristic. Ephesians 4, 22 and 24 tell us, to put off your old self, old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And Ephesians 5, 3 through 5 tell us, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that anyone or that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So, so immorality or impurity of any kind must not be practiced. Those verses are clear. Our speech, attitudes, actions, what we think about should be dominated by thanksgiving to God. So what should we be thinking and dwelling on? Philippians 4.8 always comes to mind, right? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When our lives are filled with thoughts that are pleasing to the Lord and we're serving and loving others as our Lord has called us to, and we're thinking of others as more important than ourselves, we will be less likely to be caught up in sinful thoughts, actions, or deeds. We've all seen people, either in our own lives or sadly as leaders in the church, who have gone down the road of sexual infidelity and then left the Christian faith. First, let me state that they were never in the faith. God's word is clear in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Once we are in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's Ephesians 1, 1, 13 to 14. God who began a good work in us will complete it. It's Philippians 1, 6. Everyone who the Father gives to the Son will come to him and he will raise all of them up on the last day. That's John chapter 6. Good verses there to read, 37 to 47. We are given eternal life the moment we believe, John 5, 24. When someone who has professed faith leaves the faith, they were never in the faith to begin with. 1 John two nineteen tells us, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. We're reminded in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and I have a blog post on this verse. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 tells us, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So if you're professing Christ, if you are professing Christ and you're living however you want, 
I'd advise you to examine yourself to make sure you are in the faith. If we're in Christ, the Holy Spirit will give us a new heart and new desires to pursue holiness. 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 1 Corinthians 6.11 come to my mind here. So please don't take this lightly. The sin of lust, if not dealt with, can lead us down the road to destruction. Don't think because you haven't committed the actual physical sin of adultery that you are free and clear from this. We all have adulterous hearts. Let's not be the self-righteous Pharisees and think of ourselves higher than we ought. So don't ever say, this can't happen to me. If there are things that you know need to be put out of your life, take care of it this moment. Seek the help of the Holy Spirit at work within you to be killing sin. Sin is destructive. Sin leads to death. Sin destroys man. Sin is hateful to God. The wages of sin is death or hell. God cannot look upon sin. The words from Martin, um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones are just really good to bring us to a close here. He states, God forbid that any of us should be able to look at this holy law of God and feel satisfied. If we do not feel unclean at this moment, God have mercy upon us. If we can conceivably be satisfied with our lives because we have never committed an act of adultery or of murder or any one of these things, I say that we do not know ourselves nor the blackness of our own hearts. We must listen to the teaching of the blessed Son of God and examine ourselves, examine our thoughts, our desires, and our imagination. And unless we feel that we are vile and foul and need to be washed and cleansed, unless we feel utterly helpless with a terrible poverty of spirit, and unless we are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, I say, God have mercy upon us. I thank God that I have a gospel which tells me that capital A, another, who is spotless and pure and utterly holy, has taken my sin and my guilt upon himself. I am washed in his precious blood, and he has given me his own nature. When I realized that I need a new heart, I found that God, that he had come to give it to me, and he has given it. He states, it's a little prayer here. So he says, thy nature, gracious Lord, impart, come quickly from above, write thy new name upon my heart, thy new best name of love. And he ends it there and he says, let that be our prayer. So my dear friend, I do pray that is our prayer. May we live lives of obedience and humility and purity before the Lord. Seek him to give you the strength you need to obey what he calls us to do. And he will do it because he is faithful and because Jesus is enough always, my friend. I'm so thankful for your time today. The full show notes are at the blog at thankfulhomemaker.com. If you're enjoying the podcast and you have a moment, I'd be so thankful if you could just leave a rating or review wherever you listen and when you get a moment. I'm so thankful for each and every one of you that has done that. It has helped so many others find the podcast. And if you're looking for some fun gifts for homemakers in your life, I have a little shop that supports the work here at the podcast. It has some fun um, some fun mugs. Actually, a newly added one is Jesus is Enough Always. But there's t-shirts and tote bags and sweatshirts that may be a blessing to you or someone else this upcoming holiday season. You can find it under the shop tab at thankfulhomemaker.com. Again, I'm so thankful for you, my friend, and your time here. And I do pray you have a very blessed week. Mm-hmm.